right, so anybody here not see or read The Lord of the Rings? All right, I got a few honest people. I, the, the good news is the cross even covers those sins. Um, you, you really need to know those stories. I mean, come on. Um, so, but I do want to go through the story arc of this because I think it sets us up pretty well. Is, so at the beginning of the story, Frodo gets a ring from Bilbo. You know, and these are just, they're, they're hobbits. They're like not quite people, but they're the hobbits. And with the ring comes a job. And, and it's to deliver the ring and to destroy the ring to take away the power of evil that's around them. So this gift really is a curse. It's not really a gift because he's got this tremendous journey that he has to go on, which is really the, the story that, that we're told over 10 hours of movies or whatever they give us. Um, so, and as he does this, he, he brings some of his buddies with him. You have other, other hobbits join with him on this journey. Uh, Gandalf the wizard. You have uh, an elf that he picks up along the way, a troll. He's got a, a human king that's with him. And the story is them fighting off the evil that's attacking them as they go through. But the, if you pay attention, the plot also is that the ring itself is tied in with the evil. And when Frodo slips the ring on and he disappears, but then he's visible to the eye of Sauron, right? The, the evil can see him. And it, it, he's drawn to this because there's this power in that evil of the ring. And even his friends that are with him, the smart ones like Gandalf goes, I want nothing to do with that. He won't even touch the ring, but others are tempted by it. And, you know, Boromir is like, oh, he, you can just see he wants it. And Aragorn won't get near it because he knows that he is susceptible to wanting the ring. And it's just so tempting to them. And, you know, you, when you read through that or watch through that, depending on which one you do, you watched it, I know. It's, you know, it's, a, it's their long books, I get it. Um, you see that, that that's similar to the way we are with our sin, right? Yes, we spend our life fighting the attacks of evil that are coming from outside of us towards us, but we also need to deal with what's inside of us that draws us to evil, and that we are to reject that and to throw that away, similar to the way he had to destroy the ring. And that really is, it kind of brings us to our, our passage where we know that we're, as we go through our life, we don't do the things that we want to do, the things we ought to do. We end up you know, being tempted to do these things that are outside of that. We're tempted to do what's easy versus what's good. And we, what's pleasing to God is not always what we feel is pleasing to us. So we have this tension that we're fighting with constantly in our lives. So I'm not going to spend a, a, the most of our time in Romans 7, as Paul said, but I do want us to set this as the, the background of what we want to talk about today. So in, in Romans 7, Paul is dealing with this acknowledgement of like the giving of the law is what made him know what sin was. He says, I wouldn't even have known what covetousness was if the law did not say, do not covet. But as soon as it said, do not covet, he goes, oh, I know what that is. And he knows it because the evil inside of him, it's just, it's flashing saying, yeah, I covet. And then, so the question is, well, is that the law's fault or is it sin's fault? And Paul clears that up. No, no, it's sin's fault. It's not the law's fault. The law's not bad. It's sin. So we pick up in Romans 7, 13 
Page 1121 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along, it's a bit of a wordy passage, but I think it sets our stage well. So again, 713 says, did that which is good then bring death to me? You know, the law is what's good. Did it bring death? He goes, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law exposed sin as the evil that it is. 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So he's talking about how he's separated from that law, that he's in his flesh here. And then 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me, so I find it to be a law that when I do, that I want, sorry, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's, taught, he's got this tension, I want to do right, and I want to do wrong, and it's going to battle inside of him. And he says in 24 and 25, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there's this, this back and forth, there's this dual desire that Paul is wrestling with in here, and I think when we read passages like 14 and 15 and 16, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I think all of us, if we're honest, go, I got you, Paul. I understand you, right? I do the same thing, right? That is our experience. You know, there's not one of us that sits here and goes, I don't really understand what Paul's talking about there. Like, I always do exactly what I want, and it's always good. If you, you're saying that, you're, you're lying, right? Like, right? Each of us understands that there's this tension going on within us that we have to do battle with. And that is the question that was posed to us. As we, again, we're still in the series of uh, what does the Bible say about, and people gave us questions. So we had a question around this relationship of sin still being in the lives of believers today. So we want to look today, it's like, why is it important for us to understand the relationship between Christians and their sin? What is true? What do we know about that relationship, about the sin that still dwells in us? And then what can we do about it? Because we don't want to be okay with it, right? We want to fight against that. So first, why is it important for us to understand the relationship between the Christian and his or her sin? Well, we know that when we are saved, when we come to faith, 
their relationship with sin should change, right? Prior to being Christians, we wouldn't have been warring against our sin. It would have just been who we are. It would have been normal for us to be in sin, such like a fish being in water, you almost wouldn't even recognize it because it's just the environment that you're in. But when we come to faith, sin should now be alien to us. It should be foreign. We should, it should strike us as not right. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So, again, as we become Christians, it should be something that we go, well, I might still sin, but it can't be my practice. Right? That shouldn't be my practice any longer. In fact, we're actually held to a standard that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5, 48. This is such a great and awful verse in some regards. It's, be perfect, therefore, as I am perfect. Right? That is the standard that's set before us. And it's an awful standard because we can't live to it. Right? We're glad for grace that we're not judged according to that standard. We're judged by Christ. But that's what we're to attain to. And in Romans 6, we see the, the, this before and after. Right? I'm not going to read the whole chapter here, but we begin apart from Christ as slaves to sin. That's where we were. You know, we, we did not have any genuine freedom. We, we were actually incapable of good, not anything that we would call good. Right? I mean, you could help an old lady cross the street uh, as an unbeliever and say, oh, see, that was good. I did good. No, no, we're, we were incapable of good in terms of doing something that is ultimately pleasing to God. But once we become a Christian, that switches and now we are slaves to righteousness. That is our new master, is Christ, and we serve him in righteousness. So where we see that that's not the case in us, we're to do battle against that. Right? Romans 8.13, because every sermon of mine has to include a verse from Romans 8. It's a requirement. Uh, but it's actually the perfect one for us today. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's really what we want to get at today is if we live according to the flesh, we're going to die. That's everything is at stake here. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The question then becomes, how do we do that? Because that is a vital question now. If living requires putting to death the deeds of the body by the Holy Spirit, we need to know how to do that. John Owen says it this way. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's this ongoing active nature of killing sin. You can't just say, oh, I did that yesterday, I'm okay today, that the act of killing sin is something we're going to do all the time the rest of our lives while we're here in this body. Owen goes on to say, indwelling sin always abides while we're in this world. In other words, as long as we're here, sin is going to be something we have to wage war against. He says, therefore, it is always to be mortified. just means to be put to death, to be killed. It's always to be killed. Sin will always be acting if we are not always mortifying, he says. It's going to be one or the other. You're either in the act of working to put your sin to death, 
or it is acting to put you to death. It's one or the other. So the mark of a true believer in Christ is that we are at war with our sinful flesh. We are not content to say, well, I'm saved. It doesn't matter. No, we are going to be in that battle at all times. So the, the question becomes, what is true of the relationship between sin and believers? Like, what do we, what do we know about that? Well, one, we know that it's going to continue to be there. That, that there's still going to be sin. Right? Our experience makes that obvious. Right? There's not one of us that would go, I've kind of mastered this Christianity thing. Like, I'm, I'm really, really good now, and I, I don't sin anymore. Right? We're not saying that. Right? Your experience makes it abundantly obvious, as does mine, that we are still sinners. We're still doing things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Right? Scripture acknowledges this because there are commands in Scripture to continue to confess. Right? Matthew 6 says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right? That is not something that's a once and done. That's something that we are continually commanded to, to say and do. James 5 commands us to confess our sins to others. Again, that's given to a believing audience. That's not given to someone who is apart from Christ. That's given to people in Christ. We're to continue to confess. That, that command would make no sense if not for the fact that we would continue to sin. Paul's letters, right? Just read the New Testament. Paul's not writing letters to churches going, you guys have nailed it. You guys are almost perfect. This is amazing. He's writing them going, uh, you guys have screwed this up. Let me correct you. Right? Look at Corinthians. They're not having PG problems here. Right? There's incest in this church. Like, it's awful what's going on there. Paul's writing to Christian churches dealing with the sin inside the Christian churches. Look at our favorite people of Scripture. We look at these are our heroes of the faith. You know, you look through them and you go, they are a bunch of screw-ups. I mean, Peter, that's the guy that Jesus goes, get behind thee, Satan. Right? That doesn't come after you've done something glorifying to God. Right? It's when you really have screwed up. He was impetuous. He said he was constantly losing his temper. He was a man of short faith, yet he's called to lead churches. Right? Paul, he has his own problem. Right? David, He's a man after God's own heart. Like, David, okay, that's the one. We, we're good. We, he was an mur- adulterer, a murderer. He lacked faith in terms of leading the military. He was a total screw-up. You wouldn't even be friends with this guy. Sin is continuing in the lives of believers through the, throughout. So when Paul says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate... We unfortunately identify with that. Yet what happens is our attitude towards sin will change through time. Right? So there was a time when, you, apart from Christ, you might have felt bad about things you did wrong, but you were more likely to feel guilty, rightfully so, and you felt bad about your guilt, or you felt bad about the consequences of your sin, but you did not have a godly sorrow. Right? So... Do you actually have sorrow for your sin, which means you're, you're upset that you offended a holy God and you want to deal with it before God, or you just want the consequences to go away? Right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief 
produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces debt. That garden variety, I feel bad about feeling bad, just leads to death. There's no eternal benefit to that. But a godly sorrow leads to repentance. And John Piper warns us as Christians uh, here, he goes, that there's a, there's a kind of guilt and sorrow for sinning where underneath it, there's this quiet assumption that the sin is going to happen again. Probably before the week is out. It's a cloak for fatalism about your besetting sins. Those things that you just keep doing over and over and over again. And he says you feel bad about them, but you've also surrendered to their inevitability. Right? We've heard make no provision for the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. You confess something, but you take no effort to make sure that it doesn't happen again. In fact, you kind of just assume it's going to, and you go, but that's okay. God's going to forgive me. He's good. He's got a lot of grace. I'm not going to, it's not going to run out. He's got more for me. Right? So, you know, you, you go out and get drunk, and you go, oh, I'm sorry I did that, God, but you got plans to go out with the guys Friday night again to the same bar, and you don't cancel them. You're making plans to just do it again, and you're presuming on God's grace. Right? That's not how a believer should respond. Our attitude towards our sin should change over and over and over towards hating that sin over time. And our attitude should change in that we are actually warring against it. It doesn't mean we never sin again, but it means we are not accepting of it. We're going to battle with it to fight against that over and over and over again. And what that will lead to is that over time, our sin will be diminishing over time. So that if you've been a Christian for 20 years and we look back 10 or 15 years, we should see if we were, we had some magical like measurement that we knew exactly how many sins and the severity of the sins you had. If we could measure that, we would see that you have less sins today than you did 15 or 20 years ago. Now, that's not going to be the same pace for all of us. Some of you are going to move much more quickly than others, and the different stages of your life move more, lesser or greater speeds. So I'm going to read this from David Paulison, uh, a great Christian counselor. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, I remember listening to when he spoke about this in a podcast years ago. It was at a time of life where I had a really long commute, and I was, and I, I'm a bit of a psycho. I listened to all my podcasts on two speed. So I was probably listening to four to five hours of podcasts every day. And the vast majority of those are just lost into the, the cobwebs of my brain. Um, don't remember most of what I've listened to. I can still tell you where I was driving when I heard him say this. That's the level of impact this had on me when I heard it. So I do want to share with you. It's longer than something I would normally read, but I do feel it's worthwhile. Um, and he's talking about, he calls this, it's your direction that matters with regards to how are we dealing with the sin in our life. He says, the rate of sanctification, that's just the, the process by which we become holy, where we're transformed over our lives. The rate of that is completely variable. We cannot predict how it will go. Some people during a season of life leap like gazelles. Let's say you've been living in flagrant sexual sins. You turn from sin to Christ and the open sins just disappear. No more fornication. You stop sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. No more pornography. You stop surfing the net or reading the latest salacious romances. Never again. 
It sometimes happens like that. Not always, of course, but a gazelle season is a joy to all. For other people, though, or even some people at another season in their life, sanctification is a steady and measured walk. You learn truth. You face fears and step out toward God and people. You learn to serve others constructively. You build new disciplines. You learn basic life wisdom. You learn who God is, who you are, and how life works. You learn to worship, to pray, to give your time, money, and care. And you grow steadily wonder of wonders. Other people, though, or again, other, the same people in another season of life, are trudging. It's hard going. You limp. You don't seem to get very far very fast. Old patterns of desire or fear are stubborn. But if you trudge in the right direction, high praises to the Lord of glory. One day you will see him face to face and you will be like him. Some people crawl on their hands and knees for a long or short season. The progress is painful and you're barely moving. But praise God for the glory of his grace. You are inching in the right direction. And there may be times when you're not even moving. You're stuck in gridlock, broken down, but you're still facing the right direction. That's Psalm 88, the basement of the Psalms. The writer feels dark despair, but it's despair oriented in the Lord's direction. In other words, it's still faith, even when faith feels so discouraged that you can only say, you are my only hope. Help me. Where are you? That kind of prayer counts. It made it into the Bible. And there are times you might fall asleep in the blizzard and lie down comatose and forgetful. But grace wakes you up, reminds you, and gets you moving again. There are times you slowly wander off in the wrong direction, beguiled by some false promise or disappointed by a true promise that you falsely understood. But he who began a good work in you awakens you from your sleepwalk. Sooner or later, and it puts you back on the path. And then there are times you revolt and do a face plant in the muck, a swan dive into the abyss. But grace picks you up and washes you off again and turns you back. Slowly you get the point. Perhaps then you leap and bound or walk steadily or trudge or crawl or face with greater hope in the right direction. Oh, we love gazelles. Graceful leaps make for great stories about God's wonder-working power. And And we like steady and predictable. It seems to vindicate our efforts at making the Christian life work in a business-like manner. But in fact, there's no formula, no secret, no technique, no program, no schedule, and no truth that guarantees the speed, distance, or time frame. On the day you die, you'll be somewhere still in the middle. But you will be further along. And when we lengthen the battle, we realize that our business is in the direction. Our sin will diminish over time. It's not the speed that counts. It's the direction we're moving in. Praise be to God for that. So I just, I really, really appreciated how Paulson put that.
Um, and our, what, but what's sort of like a, a, a conflict to us here is that as our sin diminishes and as we grow in our faith, our awareness of our sin will increase. So you might actually feel like you're sinning more when you're sinning less because God is showing you areas that you need to grow in, right? If the day I came to faith, God showed me every sin I had and it was scrolling on the screen up there going, well, you did this, you did this, I would have been overwhelmed and crushed. And in God's grace, he did not show them to me all at once, but through the years, he shows me more and more. And that's normal. And as you, as you read scripture, as you study, as you spend time in prayer, the, those areas of your life that you completely overlooked are now exposed. And he's saying, we're going to deal with this next. I was talking to somebody who was here last night and he goes, I, I, he really identified with that. And he goes, yeah, I feel like every time I master one area, something else pops up. And I think it was like, spiritually, like we're playing whack-a-mole. <laughs> There's like another sin, another sin, and we're trying to hit it and we're dealing it. But you're warring with it. And that's, that is what we are called to do, is to continue to war with it. So our position before God, as we sin and we still are doing so, that itself is not impacted. Right? So we never want to forget that who you are in Christ is secure. We are still accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6. We still bear the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are still a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are still have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21.27. We're still sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13 and 14. And we are still awaiting the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8. None of those things change if you go out and sin 10 minutes after you leave here today. Right? That's incredible news. We don't keep ourselves. I think it was John MacArthur said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Right? If there's a way that you and I can screw it up, we would. Right? God is the actor of our salvation. Right? He is the author and finisher of it. Our sin doesn't impact it, but it does impact our effectiveness in our work. Right? So imagine you, you live a life where you just, Pay no attention to your sin and just let it fester and grow. And then you share the gospel with somebody. What are they going to say to you? Is that what that looks like? Right? You're a hypocrite. Why would I want that? Right? Our effectiveness can be hindered. Um, John Owen, again, you almost have to study John Owen when you study this topic. Like He is the master of it. Um, he says it this way. He goes, with regarding our spiritual energy being diminished. Right? If, you, if you are living in a life where you're not going to war with your sin, you will not have much spiritual energy. He goes, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification, again, just the putting to death of the deeds of the flesh. If we are not putting our sin to death regularly, we will lack spiritual energy and vigor, that life that comes with it. And the other thing that is impacted is our fellowship and our communion with God, right? Our prayers are hindered when we are living and not warring with our sin. We may feel distant and isolated from God, 
Uh, the word feel there really important. You're not actually isolated and distant from him, but it may feel that way for a season when you're not warring with your sin. Um, we can carry guilt in our emotions. Even as forgiven people, we can carry guilt when we are living in our sin. Um, we are in need of confession. Uh, you think about it this way, you know, you, you, if you're married, you know, you, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but there are some people in there that will occasionally say something that is hurtful to their spouse, right? None of us have done that, I'm sure, right? But it, that happens, I've heard. No, right? Never done that. Um, you don't just cancel the marriage at that point, right? You don't just go, well, are done. You didn't appreciate dinner. Like, you know, right? No, but it can, it can harm the relationship, right? The, the, the fellowship between husband and wife is damaged by the harsh words. So what is needed is a confession and a reconciliation. It's, it's the same with us, with God. He doesn't cancel your salvation going, you're an idiot, why'd you do that again? And they go, you're done, you're cut off. No, but there is a strain there that has to be dealt with. So that, that's why, it, that's what we know is true about sin in, in, our, in our lives as believers. But the real question that we want to get to is, well, what do we do about it? Right? Just acknowledging that it's there is, is part A, right? But, but we don't want to just acknowledge that and know that. We want to actually deal with it. So how do we deal with it? How do we kill sin? How do we wage war against that sin is what we want to and need to do. So I have a, a top 10 list. So I was going to do this with drum roll and note cards and throw them out when I was done. If anyone's old enough to remember David Letterman with his top 10 lists. Um, I can't even stay up that late anymore, so I wouldn't, wouldn't know what's on late night TV. Um, but the first one we have on here is flee. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee the evil desires of youth. Right, so if you are in a time of temptation to sin, you have a choice to just get out. You don't have to stay. Now, that is not a solution for every temptation. You know, you, you work with an attractive woman that sits in the next cubicle over, and you're tempted by her. You can't run out of work every day when she shows up. You're going to get fired. You need a better way to deal with it. But many times when there is a temptation to sin, you can just flee the situation. But fleeing is not sufficient in itself, which is why the verse continues. And number two is we are to pursue. What are we to pursue? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So we don't simply want to try to eliminate sin from our lives. That is a battle that will just go on and on and on. But it gets easier if we're actually filling with something that's beneficial to take its place. Uh, Puritan Jonathan Edwards would call those our religious affections. We are to, to pursue those and to stir those up so that we are desiring the things of the Lord. We don't want to simply avoid sin. We want to pursue what is good. You know, that's why in, in Philippians we're told to think about things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and good. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Fill ourselves up with that. And Hebrews would say we, we're to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. Don't just strive for an absence of evil. Strive for a positive holiness. The third one is we're to pray. I know it's a Sunday school answer, but specifically around that, Matthew 6 says, lead me not into temptation. 
We are instructed to pray that. How often do you actually do it? We, we sort of just dismiss that as, well, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer is a kid's prayer. No, no, like we are instructed, pray, lead me not into temptation. How, if you are neglecting that as a prayer, you're neglecting the means to avoid temptation. Right? Because we know that God answers prayers. And if we're instructed to pray it specifically, lead me not into temptation, you know he's going to answer that by not leading you into temptation. So don't go to battle ignoring a means of victory. Number four, connected with that, is we're to confess. Sin, it's like, it's like when you have like a mold in your house. If you don't treat the mold, what's going to happen? It just keeps growing. Right? It doesn't kill itself. So sin's going to do the same thing. How do you kill the sin? You confess it. Sin hates light. When you confess it, you're bringing it into the light. You're cutting off its source. Um, next week, we're actually going to deal with confession. Pastor Bob is preaching on um, confessing and how we, the instruction to confess to other believers. So come back next week. Hear Pastor Bob. Uh, number five is to be watchful, right? First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Pay attention, right? Sin is crouching at your door. Satan's waiting for you, right? So what does being watchful look like? It's where do you get tripped up? Where do you find yourself falling into the same sins over and over and over again? If you're watchful, you're going to avoid those places, those times, those situations. You know, I remember reading you know, years ago about a, a guy who, he, when he would, he would do a lot of business travel, but he struggled with pornography. So this was prior to internet days. This was the, you'd rent movies on your TV days. So when he would get to his hotel room, he would pull his TV off the wall and put it out in the hallway. Because he was so serious about not giving in to temptation, he knew himself and he did not want to put that before him. So are we willing to get to the point of really doing something that would make us look foolish to avoid our sin? Because I'm sure people in the hotel are like, dude, what are you doing? It's kind of a weird thing to do, right? If you're a hotel worker and the guy just stuck his TV in the hallway. And he probably had to explain why. That's how seriously he was taking his sin. Number six is connected to that. We can just avoid, right? What does scripture tell us to do is to be radical about avoiding times where there could be sin. What does radical look like? It's cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye. You go, that's really extreme. Well, so is sin. What level of willingness do we have to really avoid a temptation? To avoid giving in. And we can resist. Right? When, when temptation comes along, we are not required to give in to it. You know, we are told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? Resist him. James 4, right? Resist the devil. So what does that look like? So I have an elastic here. Jared's going to come up and help me out here. So if this is my temptation, Jared is evil. He's sin here and this. Not really. So just stay down there. Stay down here. You're going to pull me off with the elastic, but we don't want to break the elastic, right? Pull me down. 
oh, right? Oh, that's, that's really strong, right? You, you were able to pull me right off the, with that. Now, why did that happen? Did you actually pull me down? No. Well, why did I fall? Because, oh, it hurt my finger a little bit. It's starting to dig into my finger. And I go, that's really too hard. And I, I, so I just decided to jump because I didn't want it to hurt. Right? That's what we do with our temptation. The temptation comes and we start to feel a little bit of pain. It gets uncomfortable and we go, I can't handle this. And we jump. But we try this again. And I'm standing there going, 1 Corinthians says, no temptation has seized me except that it's common to man. And I just keep resisting, and I keep fighting, and it hurts, and it's digging, and then it snaps. Now, what power does sin have over me now? It's broken. Right? Thank you. Right? So, when we resist sin, it has so much power and then no more. So, yeah, it hurt. Like, that, when that snaps off, I feel that on my finger, but it lost its grip on me. The resisting of it has a limit of power. So we, are, we can and do that. And we are promised that it is not going to be beyond what we can bear. We can resist. And number eight, we can, again, Sunday school answer here, but it's true. We can put on the armor of God. Right? We're told we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes fitted for the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Again, we know what those are, right? We've, most of us have studied those probably multiple times, especially if you've taught Sunday school, because it's one of those lessons that shows up every year. But are you actually paying attention to it? Are you actually trying to put that on as a defense against the temptations that come? Because again, if you are not, you're going to battle without the armor that we are promised. That is our fault, not God's. God is faithful to do what he promises, but we have a responsibility to use what he has given us. And I think too often we just kind of assume and presume upon what God will do, and we don't take the parts that we are instructed to do. Number nine, we can hide God's word in our heart. What do we mean by that? We just mean memorize it. Where to know scripture, right? Jesus is tempted in the desert by Satan three times, and three times what does he do? He quotes scripture. Now, I'm sure all of us have large swaths of Deuteronomy memorized so that we can fight off Satan the same way, right? Maybe not. But we are to memorize scripture. What scripture should you memorize? You know where you're tempted. There are scriptures that are particular to your area of struggle and concern. Maybe it's simply memorizing that 1 Corinthians passage that says that there isn't a temptation that's beyond what you can bear. Just knowing that might give you the confidence to say, I'm not giving in because this power of sin can go so far and no further. And it will snap and break and I'll be free. Maybe that's just the one. But there's 31, 32,000 verses or whatever in, in Scripture. How many do we actually have hidden in our hearts? And number 10 is, I think, the one that ties them all together. Because the first nine are all things that we are to do. But 10 is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Because none of the other nine are any good 
if they're apart from the power of God. They're not magic incantations that you're doing incantations that you do that magically make you holy. It is the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you as you do those things that provide the, that freedom from sin. Uh, the theologian John Murray, not our John Murray that comes here, but the theologian John Murray says, "Because God works, we work." All right, so. Knowing that God is true for all of his promises, knowing that all these things that he says are good and true, we work. We strive. We put forth our effort. We do all these things knowing that it's God who will actually do it. So why is it important that we know the relationship between sin and a believer? Again, I'm going to give you John Owen again. He says, do you mortify? Do you put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So what do we know about sin with us? That it's here as long as we're in the body. It's an enemy to be fought against, to go to war with, to never give in to, but to constantly fight. And we are still secure in Christ. And how do we wage war against this sin and against our flesh? We do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, in prayer, through the armament, the the weapons of Scripture. uh, And we do it with the diligence of a good soldier who's looking to please his commanding officer, as Timothy would tell us. So why does this matter? Well, we're not earning our salvation. We don't go to this battle against sin going, well, if I do it just right, God will be happy and he'll accept me. It's not how it works. We are already accepted. We do it to please the Lord. We do it because we're thankful of what Christ has done on the cross. We're thankful for what he's promised. We're thankful for the life that we have to look forward to. We don't do it to earn something. You do it because we love him. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are so incredibly patient with us. Um, Lord, we're, we're a people that unfortunately also identify with Paul when he says, I do not do the things I want to do, but the very things I hate, that is what I do. We desire that not to be, Lord. Um, so we pray that you would lead us not into temptation. Pray that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that you would provide us that that armor of God that we would defend against, that we would be wise to flee when we're weak, that we would resist to the point where the the power of sin is broken, that that temptation is gone, that Satan would flee from us, that we would know to avoid situations, that we would be serious about sin to the point of cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye, that we would never be okay with our sin, that we would just allow it to coexist, but that we would constantly be fighting against it. That we, as John Owen would say, be killing sin or that, so that sin could not be killing us. So, Lord, we, we ask for, for transformation of us, that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of your son. That we our sanctification, that we would grant us a season that we were like gazelles, that we would just make this massive jump forward. That we would have that, that benefit, that joy, that excitement of having a season like that. So 
Lord, we, we know that you are a, a God who can do these things with but a word from your mouth. So we, we trust them to you. Um, we, and we trust that every promise you have is, is yes and amen. And that everything you say about the future is if it's already happened. Uh, so we pray in Jesus' name.